So today is July 9th, 2017. Our message is more life to give. And we wanted to start with a testimony from prison ministry. And I would just like to preempt that by saying during worship, I believe that God was preparing this place for this message. That your hearts are already moved in the direction that God wants you to go. And in the message, you'll find out how to take the steps that the Spirit is urging you to do. Amen? Amen. Tara, Nolan, give us a testimony. Good morning. Um, so the last several weeks, I know the Lord's been doing some amazing things within the jail ministry that we're a part of at Brazoria County Jail. And um, this, this morning, we, we got this amazing testimony that we couldn't pass up, so we had to share it with you guys. But um, we had a woman come in today to church. And she was actually in jail maybe a year prior or so. And um, she was doing great. And she was, she was coming to church faithfully and uh, reading her word and praying. And she ended up getting released. And she continued what she was practicing out there. And um, long story short, some of the world tried to come back into her life and pull her away. And once she realized that, she actually um, turned herself back into jail so that she could, she actually told us that um, in jail and in, in church was the only place that she experienced the presence of God. And so she knew she had to get back to that in order to avoid falling away. And so she, she gave up her freedoms, her, her life, and turned herself back into jail. And we saw her in church this morning where, you know, our first our response is like, what are you doing? You're like, and she's, she told us, like, this is the only place I've experienced the presence of God. And the world was trying to pull me away, and I, I didn't really know where else to go. So I turned myself in so I can come to church and experience the presence of God. And so she gave up her outside freedoms so she can have a life with Jesus in jail. Amen. Amen. That's a very interesting place to start. You know, I don't recommend jail as the solution to your spiritual problems. But let me just go ahead and say it plainly. So those of you who are guests will know exactly what kind of pastor I am. Many of you are sitting out there claiming to be free and you're prisoners already. You're in a jail of your own making, a total slave to your own physical and perverted mental desires. And... Somebody sitting in a jail cell, not able to walk any more than a six by seven will allow, might be more free than you sitting in suburbia here pretending to be a Christian among the flock of God. The word of God will show you what you are. It's a mirror. And if you are shining with the radiance of Christ, then when you look in the word, that's what you will see. If you are filthy, masquerading with canine teeth, but wearing sheep's clothing then God will show you that so that you can repent and a regeneration can occur. It's my personal experience that the more I preach to Christians, the more I find people getting converted. I want to say that there is more life to be had. There is more life to be given. I won't begin with you today in Proverbs 21, 21. That's easy to remember, huh? Say there when you were there. The rest of you, let's get there. 
We're a small church. I can reach you from any area of this building. So you might as well just do what we're asking. Come on, you in Proverbs 21, 21? Amen. He who pursues righteousness and love finds life, prosperity, and honor. Somebody say, that's good. Who wants to turn down life, prosperity? You need to take that slide down for me. Who wants to turn down life, prosperity, and honor? Nobody, right? There's no part of that that you don't want, is there? When we look at life, prosperity, and honor, that's a beautiful, amazing thing. It so happens that the Hebrew behind it is even more beautiful. Now, it's not going to make the NIV translation wrong. It's not going to make the New King James translation wrong, although I take great delight in doing that sometimes. What's going to happen is it's going to enrich enrich what you already know. And I want you to hear this. He who pursues righteousness. The first question is, what is righteousness? That'll bring us to our first slide. When you see the word righteousness... This is Zedekah in Hebrew. It's Strong's number 6666. You see how we group those in twos rather than threes? (laughs) Make you wonder about the Strong's numbering system, huh? Zedekah is righteousness in your government. Righteousness as God's attribute. Righteousness in any case or in any cause. Righteousness as in truthfulness. Righteousness is in morality or ethically right. Righteousness is in justice or justification. But most importantly in Judaism, righteousness is not righteous if it's not an action. Zedekah refers to righteous acts. When Jesus says, when you do your acts of righteousness, and then he goes on to say, when you fast. When you pray, when you give alms to the poor, these are all actions of Zedekah in Hebrew. And there is no such thing as righteousness without action in Hebrew. It's spoken of as a noun, but the noun describes the action of righteousness. He who pursues Zedekah, righteousness, and love finds life. That's not hard to understand. Hebrew is chai. It's the God kind of life. And do you see the word prosperity there? Prosperity is actually the word zedekah, righteousness. It turns out that the translators saw it repeated and they said, you know, this must be another facet of righteousness. So, so let's help them understand some of the other facets. But listen to the truth in this passage. If you are pursuing right action and love, what do you find? You find life and more right action. The more right that you do, the more right you find to do. The more wrong that you seek, the more wrong that you end up doing, right? It has an exponential multiplication involved in it. When you are looking for righteousness, somebody say pursue. Pursue. Psalm 34 teaches us to pursue righteousness. It says turn from evil, seek good, right? These are all action verbs. 
You have to do something for righteousness. And when you are pursuing righteous action and love, then you find life and more righteous action. Let us go to our next slide. That's an important thing because when you pursue righteousness or zedeka and love and you find life and more zedeka or righteous action, there's something else involved in it. The word translated honor is the word kavod. How many of you recognize the word kavod? Kavod is that weighty presence of God that filled the tabernacle. Kavod is that weighty presence of God that caused people to not be able to stand because God was so good. It has to do with, yes, His abundant riches, but we're not talking about raining gold dust here. We're talking about a presence of the Lord that can be felt and honor the kind that is due the Lord. And it comes to you when you do what God says to do. Oh, come on, man. I don't know what work was like in your household growing up. But when I completed a task, that did not mean I was done for the day. That meant there was more. Don't worry, little brother. There's more. There were always more things to be done. But the more I got done in a day, the more affirmation from my father I was given. We do not work for our salvation. But because we are saved, we want to do the work of him who sent us. We want our good deeds to shine before men that they might see them and glorify our father in heaven. We want to do the work of the kingdom. Amen. When you do the work of the kingdom, there is kavod for you. The result of righteous action. And by the way, that can really only come for those that are in Christ. You don't know what righteousness is when you're outside of Christ. The result is that you have life. You have more righteousness. And you have glory and honor that is belonging to God given to you. Somebody say that's good. There's more life to give. There is even more. I want to show you a similar principle in Isaiah 32. We'll begin in verse 17. Say there when you were there. Amen. I hope y'all are going to be with us today. We doing all right in the back? We doing all right on this side? Okay, well, it's just you slackers in the front, these pastoral families down here. We'll beat them into shape before it's over. Amen? Better that a righteous man strike you? Who wants some oil on their head? <laughs> Look, I love the Word of God. And I'm telling you, I, uh, I've been in a few skirmishes lately. Some I've lost. Some I've won. But I'm still standing here. Every once in a while, you've got to look the devil in the eye and say, You came to steal, to kill, and destroy. And guess what? <laughs> I'm still here. It's not over yet. Look at your neighbor say, It's not near over. Now, you were talking about your fight. I'm talking about the sermon. So we're going we're to get in Isaiah 32, 17. You ready? The fruit of righteousness will be peace. Man, let that ring in your ears. The effect of righteousness will be quietness and confidence forever. My people will live in peaceful dwelling places, in secure homes, 
in undisturbed places of rest. Though hail flattens the forest and the city is leveled completely, how blessed you will be sowing your seed by every stream and letting your cattle and donkeys range free. Man, do I love the Lord. When the Lord is describing the benefits of righteousness in life, He tells you that there's going to be disaster. But it's okay, it won't hurt you. It won't define you. He even cares about your domesticated animals. He, he's talking to them about their cattle and their donkeys. Even my little dachshund is blessed when I walk in righteousness. And he needs it. The poor thing is half a dog tall and a dog and a half long. It's like he was put together out of mismatched parts. He's got a giant nose, giant ears, and teeny little legs. And I love him all the more because he's such a misfit. It helps me understand why the Lord loves me so. When we say something like... The fruit of righteousness will be peace. Let me show you what peace is. Peace is the Strong's number 7965. It is pronounced shalom. We talk a lot about that in this church. We've given you many definitions of it. This is just one of the definitions where we can pull synonyms from. When the Hebrews say peace, the fruit of righteousness will be peace. They mean righteousness causes completeness. Oh, come on, single people. Anybody out there feels incomplete? Righteousness will make you complete. You know what unrighteousness does? It makes you feel incomplete all day long. You can never sin enough and fill that hole. Isn't that incredible? You can never drink enough and fill that hole. You can never marry enough and fill that hole. You can never do enough to make you feel complete like righteousness completes you. Righteousness also brings safety, soundness in the body, welfare, health, and prosperity in the spirit. <laughs> I'm going to emphasize that every time you hear the word prosperity because prosperity is almost never spoken of as materialistic in the Bible because the truth is, is it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom. And those who want to get rich pierce themselves with all kinds of grief. We live in a day where prosperity pimps are shaking down their churches. They are stealing from the bride of Christ. And they're taking money out of the poorest neighborhoods so that these ungodly men can ride around in plush cars and nice jets. It's abominable. It's sickening. And the only thing more sickening is what they're doing is that we allow them to do it. They should be tarred and feathered in public because they do not represent Christ, but they masquerade as an angel of light, just like the devil that they are. Shalom. Shalom is completeness, safety, soundness, welfare, health, prosperity, peace, quiet, tranquility, and contentment. You know, this kind of peace is not the kind that says, let's set down our guns and all be friends. This is the kind of peace that says, the armies of heaven are with me, so you might as well go where I'm going. This is a peace with an attitude. It does not come from inaction. It comes 
from action. It's never passive. It is always on the move, like the kingdom. The fruit of righteousness is an ever-growing, ever-expanding peace. A completeness with God. A right order. A friendship with God. What is friendship with the world? Warfare, hatred, enmity towards God. The fruit of righteous action is that you will be in shalom. But that's not all. Look at your neighbor say, that's not all. Let's go to our next slide. The fruit of righteousness will be peace. The effect of righteousness will be quietness. This word quietness, we could say it's like shack. <laughs> it's shakat, but you could just say shack because shakat doesn't sound nearly as good as shack. Quietness. One thing I always appreciated about that guy, I'm not a sports fan, but I grew up in Baton Rouge and he and I ate lunch sometimes at the same house. He was never brag- bragging. He was never a boaster. He came from a military family and he behaved himself in his early years anyway with dignity and respect. I have no idea what he did later. I quit watching TV in 1993. But prior to that, there was a dignity and a respect there. I appreciated that. The effect of righteousness is not quietness in that you don't speak. It's quietness in an undisturbed soul. Come on now. Somebody say undisturbed, undisturbed. soul. You know, it's an incredible thing. When somebody doesn't have the quietness in their soul, you can see it in their eyes. You can see it in their frantic life. You can see it in the way that they lean on their own arm like a gnat bouncing off of a window that they'll never get through, but it just keeps trying. Exasperated, tired, worn out, angry with everyone All of the time. Nothing is ever the gnat's fault. It's always the circumstances. Righteousness cures that because you're complete. Righteousness quiets your spirit in a way that you don't crave the things everyone craves. It's godliness with contentment. Somebody say amen in the house of God. By the way, if you're writing furiously, we're going to put all of this online for you because we love you. We do everything that we know how to do to help you. Amen? Amen. So more than writing, and it's okay to write, make sure you stay with me. Don't be writing about something while I'm moving on, because can I tell you, I'm going to take total advantage of the opportunity to preach today and give you at least three sermons. Amen? Amen? Let's finish this verse. Isaiah 32, 17, moving on to confidence. Our next slide. The fruit of righteousness will be peace. This is that completeness, that wholeness. The effect of righteousness will be quietness. That's an undisturbed spirit. And confidence for how long? This word is betak. It means security and safety. It's not just some kind of overdeveloped sense of arrogance. It's not just some self-reliant confidence. When you are righteous, do you know what it brings you? Security. That's why righteousness is described as an armor, like a breastplate. You don't have to... Let me just give you the best example that happens in my life frequently, right? So I'm moving along down the road with very little concern 
for all of those numerical hindrances that are posted on signs, right? Just free, where there is no law, there's no transgression, right? I've tucked my cloak in my belt, I'm out running chariots, just moving in and out of lanes. And then you see sirens. Your soul is no longer quiet and undisturbed. You no longer feel complete and whole. The first thing that I do is go get my seatbelt because that's definitely something I'm missing. It's not that I wasn't warned. It's that I refuse to uh, comply. And then I glance down at the speedometer and slam on the brakes because... It turns out that I was not exactly, completely, totally compliant with the posted speed limit. In other words, I was grossly sinning and disobeying it. That is not the fruit of righteousness. It's not the effect of righteousness. And it's a fairly humorous example, but what happens when you have your cruise control set on the speed limit and you see a siren? Nothing. You're completely secure, completely confident. Not, not a thing happens. The only time I ever really experience that is when I see sirens and they're in the distance and that shark is already eating someone else, right? <laughs> That's when I experience that. But in life, it's not really the police we have to worry about. I know our media is lying to us every day and that we think that that's the problem. It's not. That's because we hate righteous standards as a society. It's because we're inherently sinful and we don't want anybody to tell us what to do. And the last line of defense of a civilized society is unfortunately those that have guns. That's sad. It's sad. You want to avoid it? Get righteous. Get righteous. Have a healthy respect for authority even if it's misplaced. Even, even if the people that are enforcing the laws are as wicked as the people that are breaking the laws. Because when you are righteous, you can dwell secure. Your Father will take care of you. It won't matter about the color of your skin. It won't matter about your height, your weight, or your gender. All that will matter is that you have been regenerated from the inside out and you are a child of God. Friends... Here lately, we've been challenged with all kinds of interesting questions of our time. I just want to say it out loud, as bluntly, as boldly as I know how. There are no Egyptian Christians. There are no Mexican Christians. There are no Caucasian Christians. There are no black Christians. There is no such thing as a black church, a white church, or a Chinese church. There is only the body of Christ. And it comes in every color, every shape. Every size, every nationality, and before we're done, there is not one nation on the planet that will not be represented at His throne. If you identify with your nationality, your ethnicity, your height, your weight, your appearance before Christ, then you are an offense to Christ. Crucify that. Give up that nationality. Give up that race. Give up that gender. Give up whatever it is that has identified you before Christ has identified you. Otherwise, I'm going to form a church for ugly Christians. And you pretty people will not be allowed. It'll be an ugly church. 
then what will you do? You'll have nowhere to go. Oh, of course you will. You can go to Dr. Colgate, Mr. Smiley, that clown out there's church. Okay, let's talk. The fruit of righteousness is a certain kind of life. Yes, I tell the truth. Even when it's recorded, whether they're in the room, not in the room, it makes no difference to me. If somebody doesn't have the courage to stand up and call out sin, then I have no fear of them in any setting. I can assure you of that. The fruit of righteousness is a certain kind of life. The fruit of righteousness is shalom. The fruit of righteousness is quietness, an undisturbed soul. The fruit of righteousness is a confident safety and security. Oh man, who wants some of that? Man, more life to give. Say that with me. More life, More life to, give. to give. Let's go to Deuteronomy 6 and verse 1. Say there when you're there. I'm going to wait till I hear pages quit turning. All right, now all together, are you there? In Deuteronomy 6, 1 says, these are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that your children and their children, come on now, say children, children. And, their children. and their children. We're talking about at least three generations here. I'm a grandpa, y'all. That's kind of shocking to me. I, uh, I got two grandchildren, got Titus Magnus. I also have Elijah. And on, on the way, we have Beniah Othniel. We're going to take up the whole Bible in two generations. Can you imagine? And it's bonus round at the Stevens house. Because somehow or another, Miss Jen got pregnant. We believe in the fruit of righteousness. For you, your children, and their children. After them. Let me just pick back up in verse 2. So that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all His decrees and commands that I give you. And so that you may enjoy, say enjoy, Long life. God doesn't just want you to have a life full of righteousness. He doesn't just want you to have a life full of righteousness and shalom. He wants it to last a long time. He wants it to go into the second generation and the third generation. He promises that His righteousness will travel a thousand generations. So it's not just about you, is it? Oh man, it'd be enough if He changed your life, wouldn't it? But there's more life to give. He wants to change your children too. Can I tell you? It doesn't do much good to pray for your children if your life has not yet been changed. It doesn't do much good to worry about three generations from you if you hadn't taken care of your own generation. Righteousness has to start somewhere. Amen? Let's say, let's, let it start with me. Raise your hand. Say, let it start with me. Let it start with me. 
in righteousness is going to start with a right action. Because it is never just an abstract com- uh, construct. It is, in fact, something that God has spoken to you that you must do. Amen? Righteousness is always right action. We're not just going to have life. We're going to have a long life. Now let's go to John 10.10. Tell me there when you were there. I know you can quote it. At least some of you can quote it. But let's go there anyway. Amen. There, there, there. It's like you're comforting each other. There, there, there. You may have to comfort yourself before this is over. There's a stepping on the toes and then there's a stomping on the whole human. I've been told I have a bruise the fruit ministry. But since it was a girly little fruit that told me that, I ignored what he was saying. Said, I'd like to discuss your theology a little more. Is there any time in the next 30 days, any time on any day that I can meet with you? No, I'm busy. In the next 30 days, you don't have a morning, a lunch, or an evening appointment available for me anywhere at any time. Nope. Well, then you go on with your Love the Fruits ministry. It would be just fine with me. I think we mean different things by that. <clears throat> Are y'all in John 10.10? 10? Yeah. In John 10.10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill. I have to pause there. That becomes steal, kill. Right? That's, uh, I don't know. That's backwoods Louisiana or something. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Doesn't that sound a little bit like Deuteronomy? A long life, a life full of righteousness, a life full of safety, a life full of completeness, a life full of security. Jesus came to help us get that. I want to read this to you in the Amplified. You ready? Are you ready? Yes. Are you ready in the back of the room? Yes. You ready on the front row? Yes. All right, Mandy, listen up. Y'all, isn't Mandy pretty? Yes. It's not just the guys in the church that are single. There's a few amazing, godly women prepared to be pastor's wives. Y'all, we're going to change the world out of this room. If 12 scared Jewish disciples could go out and change the world, what could we do if we got good and full of the Holy Ghost and fed up with the world? It's going to happen. With holiness and faith, everything's possible. I mean, everything is possible. John 10, 10 in the Amplified. The thief comes only... In order to steal and kill and destroy, I came that they may have and enjoy life and have it in abundance to the full till it overflows as in overflows to others. See, your life is supposed to be contagious. There's more life to give. What is there? What is there? There is more life to give. I'd like you to hear this in Romans 2. In Romans 2, verse 6, it says, God will give to each person according to what his statement of faith is. God will give to each person according to what he claims he believes. 
come on now. I don't know if they're going to let y'all in other churches anymore. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence, you mean you have to pursue? To those who by persistence in doing good. What is doing good? What is that word in Hebrew? Zedekah. Those who by persistence in Zedekah seek glory, honor, and immortality. I think we've heard those words before. He will give eternal life. It turns out that when you trust him enough to do what he says, then he rewards you with shalom. He rewards you with an undisturbed spirit. He rewards you with a security even when hail is destroying your crop. Your donkey won't even have to be scared. That's incredible. I heard somebody mention CYA, and I didn't really know what that meant, but I think it's got something to do with not having to worry about your donkey during a hailstorm. It's difficult. I don't really understand, King James. I'm working on it. I'll get there eventually. Are you all in Revelation? Let's go to Revelation 21, 6 through 8. Now you will have heard about this righteous life in the law, prophets, writings of the Old Testament... You will have heard about this righteous life in the Gospels and also in the writings of the New Testament. And finally, we arrive at a book of prophecy in the New Testament. This covers all six sections of your Bible as a Jew would divide it. In Revelation 21, starting in verse 6, He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all of this. And I will be his God and he will be my son. When he says he will inherit all of this, how many of you when you were lost were trying to get your little piece of the world? Oh man, was I. Sometimes I took it from someone else. Sometimes I promised to share it with someone else. But in the end, whether I meant to or not, I took it from them. I wanted what I wanted when I wanted it because I was the God of my own life. I had my own little moral code that made it okay. You know, it was like my own little private religion. If I felt sufficiently threatened, it was okay for a preemptive attack. I mean, after all, it's only natural. I got what I wanted regardless of the cost. I was giving my life to gain the world. How sad if you succeed in that. You could run for president and everyone will love you. The Lord requires you to give away the world in order to gain life. But when you gain that life, do you know what he says to you? You'll inherit all this. And what is it? It's not the world in its corrupted form. It's not the world as it is today. It's the world as it will be when it's remade. It's the heavens as they will be when they're remade. What is more precious to you? The stinking, decaying, dying earth? Or the earth where the lamb lies down with the lion? Where the child can play next to a cobra 
and there are no problems. Where rain falls in season and out and the tree of life is bringing healing to all of the nations, which world do you want to inherit? See, there's more life to give, isn't there? Oh, man. The end result of this verse is that you inherit a new heaven and a new earth. But even more importantly, you become God's son. And he becomes your father. It's enough that he gives you an inheritance and an eternal life. But he also includes you in his royal family. How many of you grew up in a fatherless home? How many of you had a home that you wish was fatherless? Don't raise your hand. Some of you grew up in homes with an endless set of new fathers all of the time. As a child, I never found anything quite more ridiculous than mom's next boyfriend, right? I mean, you know he's only going to be there for a few weeks. He's stepping in to be dad because they're not living in a right way. He's not your dad. And uh, you hate everything about him just because of who he is. And the best part is, wait, there'll be more. The fruit of righteousness is a security. It's peace, a wholeness, a completeness. Unrighteousness will cause you to keep repeating the same mistake over and over and over. Because when you're looking for righteousness, you keep finding more and more righteousness. But when you're looking for unrighteousness, you get it in a greater abundance than you ever asked for it. Nobody ever wakes up and says, you know, today, today I want to be a crack whore. That's what, it was always my ambition, today it'll come true. Nobody does that. They started somewhere on unrighteous behavior, and it took them a lot further than they ever wanted to go. Isn't that sad? Has sin taken you in directions you don't want to go? You know what that's called? Slavery. And the Bible makes the astonishing claim that anybody who sins is in fact a slave to sin. But when the sun sets you free, you're free indeed. What then do we do with those that claim to be in Christ but are not free of their slavery to sin? We have to call it what it is, a lie and hypocrisy. No matter how well insulated by a doctrine, you know when you meet a son of God because they are led by the Spirit of God. It's the defining attribute of their life. You can see the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. You see righteousness begetting more righteousness. All this father and son talk makes me think of the parenting class. Anybody enjoying the parenting class? You know, I was in Turkey, and um, I didn't get to hear the first few parenting classes. So I was really looking forward to coming to the parenting class. Man, did Pastor Sutherland and Pastor Piro, did they do a great job? It's extraordinary. I kind of wish that I had them as my parents. Wade came close. He was the principal of the school right after they purged themselves of my presence. In the parenting class, Proverbs 10, 17 came up, and I think we ought to look at it. Is that okay? Yes. Good. Proverbs 10, 17. Y'all not weary already, are you? Good. That's good. I mean, y'all wouldn't mind 10 or 20 more minutes, huh? Who would give me 10 or 20 more minutes? Who would give me 10 or 20 more minutes? 
looking good. That looked like at least an hour right there. In Proverbs 10, 17, he who heeds discipline shows the way to life. It turns out that none of us know how to act righteously. We were born wicked sinners. No matter how cute your kid is, the first thing he does to you is messing his pants and lie to you about it. If you give him two scoops of ice cream, he wants three. If you give him one scoop and his sibling or neighbor the other scoop, he wants the one they have. That's just the way they are. I know yours is cuter than everybody else's, but he's also a sinful little devil. You have a hard time admitting that. I know that you do. I, I, my parents were educators. I've been a pastor a long time now. I hear it. The most common phrase you hear when somebody's in trouble is, it's not, I mean, it's, it's not really mine. I mean, that's not the thing. They're just in with the wrong crowd. Well, then who, pray tell, is the wrong crowd? Whose kid is the... Have you ever met somebody that said, I just want you to know my kid's the wrong crowd? No, I've never heard that. That's because everybody is convinced somebody else's kid is the problem. Your sinful nature is the problem. That transcends your culture. That transcends your nationality. That transcends your race. That transcends any other problem that you believe makes you sufficiently unique as to be able to hang on to your sinful nature and it be okay. The death of your sinful nature is required for you to get the life of God. That occurs through discipline. He who heeds discipline shows the way to life. But whoever ignores correction leads others astray. When you ignore discipline, what do you do? You're leading others astray. See, it doesn't just affect you when you will not be disciplined by God or any other authority figure. It affects everybody else that follows your example. And how can you know who that will be? That's an incredible thing. We hope to be righteous leaders. But when you are not a righteous leader, you are by default an unrighteous leader. See, it's, it's possible to be righteous and not really lead that many. But unrighteousness, because it's our natural state, there'll always be a group ready to follow you. Have you ever noticed all the cliques that can be in a high school? I'm not going to name them. Because it would be embarrassing. In my day, they were completely different than they are now. I have no idea what an emotional male is. It looks to me like you had only daughters. That's what it looks like to me. All of those cliques are based on something. A love of wickedness. And so they all get along. It's, it's easy to unite people around what their sinful nature already wants. No matter how strange or perverse, all the men can decide that they're women. All of the women can decide that they're men. And everybody will love it. Should be no problem with it because it's wicked. But when you start talking about righteousness, everyone hates it. That's an incredible thing. How on earth do we have uh, an association of Nazi ogre women fighting for women's rights that have nothing to say about ISIS. How, how do you have something like... Because they're both wicked, so they have no problem with each other. Even though their goals are diametrically opposed. It's easy to unite people around wickedness. When you hate discipline, Proverbs 10, 17 says, when you ignore correction, you lead others astray. 
It doesn't matter whether you're being corrected about the same thing or not. You have an evil alliance in that case. It is so important that we heed discipline. When we don't, we misuse the life that God has given us. And that misused life, it leads others to hell, even while we say our intentions are good. You know, that's another thing you never hear. When's the last time you talked to somebody and they said, my heart is wicked? The Bible says your heart is wicked. But when you're talking to people, what do they always say about their heart? Oh, no, I've got a good heart. You just don't understand. My, my actions may be evil, but my heart is good. That's, that's not what I meant in my heart. It's what I did with my hands and my mouth, but it's not what I meant in my heart. We're forever defenders of our hearts when we actually need to put it to death that God can give us a new heart. Because the one we have is terrible. You need a heart transplant. There's nothing good in it. We can't put a pig valve in it and make it better. We, we can't put a stent in it or a pacemaker on it. It's absolutely corrupt and beyond redemption. You actually need God to create in you a new center of your being. And until that happens, no matter how righteous you say your heart is, the truth is, it's entirely and totally corrupt. Look at Proverbs 19.3. Have I upset you yet? Oh, don't worry. I'm going to keep trying. A man's own folly ruins his life. <clears throat> See, what had happened was, <laughs> the thing is, is that teacher, she never really liked me anyway. The thing is that that cop, you know, he was just angry. He didn't have any donuts. And See, the thing is, that pastor, he hurt me. You know, he preached the whole message of it. In other words, it's never your fault that your life is the way that it is. You know, it's, it's a funny thing to be talking to somebody about what happened today. And when you do, they say, well, see, when I was a child, wait, I was talking about what just happened. Well, see, the thing is, is my first husband. I never met those people. I was talking to you about what just happened. Well, you, you know, I'm talking to you about what just happened. We are so trained that we are simply the product of some unfortunate set of circumstances that has forced upon us the life that we now have, that we don't take responsibility for the biblical truth that a man's own folly ruins his life. What has made your, bad, your life bad? Well, see, my parents were drug addicts. There are a lot of people with parents with drug addicts that have great lives. Why does yours suck? Don't act like you never heard that word. I'm not any different standing here than we are when we're barbecuing or anywhere else. I never will be. If you don't like that, then find somebody who is comfortable being a different person on the stage than they are in your home. A man's own folly ruins his life. Why is your life the way that it is? Because it's the way that you made it. Period. Say, so, well, the thing is, is everybody turned on me. They made it difficult for me and that's why it... No, no, friend. You made your life what it is. Because when you are righteous, what does a life look like? 
Oh, it looks like comfort. It looks like completeness, safety, security, wholeness. That's what it looks like. That's why we read you those scriptures in the first place. Say, yeah, but you don't understand. My situation's the exception. You know what's the exception? It's you're exceptionally blind to the condition of your own heart in life. That's the exception. Let us begin to look at what it means when we say, yet his heart rages against the Lord. His heart rages against the Lord. A man's own folly ruins his life. Here's what that word ruin means. It overthrows his life. It twists his life. It perverts his life. It distorts, subverts, and misleads away from what is normal in his life. What does it look like to have a ruined life? One that has overthrown God's rule, twisted God's command, perverted what you know is right, distorted any good that you wanted to do, subverted the good that God wanted to do, and you have been misled away from what is normal. Look at your life and ask yourself, does it pass the righteousness test? Or do you stand in ruination while claiming to be righteous? Isn't that a question worth asking? Now, I know some of you you are like, Pastor, I definitely ruined my life. And I just got righteous. And that seed's being watered and it's growing and my life's changing. Well, amen. Praise God. Be patient with me too. But if your life has been in a perpetual state of ruination, let's not pretend that it's your last boss's fault, that it's your last pastor's fault, that it's your last neighbor's fault, that it's that bad judge, that bad cop. Anybody but you. Let's just own what it is. It's not about your nationality. It's not about the color of your skin. It's not about your gender. It's not about any other victim status. It's about your sin. Man, you know what happens when you hit that kind of brick wall? You go, I can't live like this anymore. Because I can look backwards and go, I thought it was the crowd, so I changed the crowd, but I repeated the process. I thought it was the job, so I changed my job, but I repeated the process. I thought it was the drug, so like Huey Lewis, I tried a new drug, but I repeated the process. You realize that the common denominator in every problem is always the same. It's you. And that causes you to go, my God, I need more life. Change me. Help me. That's what salvation looks like. And I used to be stupid enough to believe that that only happens once in your life. Man. Let's continue. Yet his heart rages against the Lord. Proverbs 19.3 rages. A man's own folly ruins his life. We talked about that. Yet his heart rages against the Lord. One of the words that you can translate rage you can also translate storm a storm of rage or dejected feeling oh man isn't that the truth the further your foolishness carries you your life is like a giant sin storm gobbling up anybody around you you ever been caught in a storm i mean you ever been in one you can't drive in ever ever been in one that if you can't find shelter You're not sure you're going to make it through? 
I'm from Louisiana. I know what it is to swim from a storm. But the worst storms I've ever been in are the ones that my own sinful behavior caused. It's like there, there is no cure for this problem. There is no solution. No matter what I do, I'm damned. No matter what I do, I'm guilty. No matter what I do, there's no way out. And I began to say, my God, help me. And he said, there's more life to give, son. The one he gave me, I already ruined. So he gave me more. There's more life to give. Somebody say that with me. There's more life to give. A ruined life is a twisted and perverted life because of a man's own folly. No matter how pure the heart is claimed to be, in the unsubmitted, unregenerate heart, it rages against God with a storm of sin. Our popular approach of just love them. Hey man, just love them. After all, God is love, you know. That allows the people to continue in the destruction of a lifetime storm of sin. That's not very loving, is it? The popular approach of just love them leads the masses astray headlong into the storm of sin. What happens while you're just loving them and your own children join them? You're still good with just loving them? Let us be careful to watch over our own souls because there is more life to give. And also, we don't want to hug people all the way to a hellfire that is worse than the fires of Auschwitz. Hug them on their way to hell. Are you kidding me? The Bible says snatch them from the fire. I want to show you what it looks like when folly leads somebody into sin. This was a headline in the newspaper yesterday. Vatican police break up drug-fueled gay orgy at home of the secretary of one of Pope Francis' key advisors. Now, I put the source information there because I'm going to put this online. And it's important that people don't say, oh, he just hates Catholics. No, I love Catholic people. The organization that they claim to belong to is wicked beyond belief. The only thing on the planet that I think has killed more actual Christians is Islam, which is also wicked beyond belief. But I love Muslims too. Just in case you think maybe the headline was twisted, because every once in a while the paper will do that. Let's take our next slide. This is a quote from the article. Vatican police broke up a homosexual orgy last month in an apartment belonging to the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith. The department charged with, among other things, tackling clerical sexual abuse. In other words, the department in the Vatican that is responsible for priest sexual abuse had a gay drug-fueled orgy broken up by the police. Yes, that's insane. Anybody else think that's insane? It's a storm of sin. Would you let this guy babysit your kids? Because that's the head. That's, that's the guy whose apartment it is. Let that sink in for just a minute. A fifth of the world follows their leadership. Close to a fifth of the world follows a pedophile prophet named Muhammad who is following a satanic book called the Quran.
Will a man's heart lead them into destruction? It ruins lives. You say, oh, well, what difference does it make? It's, it's all the same. That's like saying it's the same no matter what kind of seed goes in the soil. That's simply not true. Everywhere these things go, we find perversity and wickedness. Or, on the other hand, the other antichrist spirit I'm talking about, we find violence and subjugation. They're not the same. And yet, I don't want to talk about the globe's problems while we're sitting in a room full of your problems. Why don't we come back for just a minute? Did you see how wicked that perversity is? Do you see how upsetting that is? Let's look at Proverbs 19.23. Do I have your attention at least? If that headline makes you laugh, something's also wrong with your heart. It ought to make you want to cry. People representing Jesus Christ are doing wicked things in His name. Now, you and I, with eyes to see, we know that they do not now and never have represented Jesus Christ. We know that. Having said that, there are many who don't. And what happens to them? What happens to those who are deceived? See, if we don't stand for righteousness in a very personally, holy, active, outward way, then the whole world is taken over. How many fifths can you add up before all five are taken? Proverbs 19, 23. The fear of the Lord leads to life. What do we need more of? Fear Lord. What do we need more of? Fear Lord. There's nothing more absent in today's ministries than the fear of the Lord. People actually sin in the house of God with no problem. They despise preaching that instills fear. They despise it. And why do they despise it? Because they have defined God as something to be laughed at, mocked. Somebody who is a genie in the sky who grants all of your wishes like Santa Claus. The truth is, the Bible teaches us that the fear of the Lord leads to life. In Proverbs 30, I'm sorry, in Isaiah 33, the fear of the Lord is a key to treasure. Throughout the Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the key to unlocking everything. And we have a shocking lack of the fear of the Lord. People walk into the house of God. They have never been obedient to the last message they heard. And they come to hear the next message. How can you fear God and leave undone what he clearly has told you to do? You wouldn't do that with your earthly father. At least not till you were big enough to ignore him. Maybe you think you're big enough to ignore God. The fear of the Lord leads to life. The one who rests content, untouched by trouble. Then one rests content, untouched by trouble. When you appropriately fear the Lord, you handle the life He gives you well. And you are content and untouched by trouble. Is there anybody here that would not like a life that's untouched by trouble? I'm going to tell you a secret. This verse is a little difficult. Because the truth is, is our lives are defined by trouble. But it's a trouble that doesn't actually touch us. A thousand can fall at one side, ten thousand at the other, but it doesn't really come near you. You're in trouble constantly, but he rescues you from it because you acknowledge his name. Little Psalm 91 there. Isaiah 33 verse 5. The Lord is exalted 
for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. He will be the sure foundation for your times, a rich store of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. If you want your life to go well, you're going to have to put the key in the car. You have to cultivate a fear of the Lord. He gave you your life and he will demand an accounting of your life. We act like the purpose of the Lord is to help you in this life and give you heaven in the next. The truth is, is you're accountable for what you do in this life and you will pay for it in the next. That's not preached nearly enough, is it? Now I keep saying that there is more life to give. That's because when I was sitting in that parenting class, Learning about child development, I had a bit of a revelation. And it blessed me. Pastor Wade is our resident expert on child development. And he helped Pastor Matt and I trudge through the ridiculous babblings of today's revered child psychologist. It was mildly amusing to see him reading the works of a guy named, get this, Eric Erickson. One of the resident experts in today's perverse pool of human intellect. He's there to instruct us, the poor uneducated masses, on the proper development of children. What Pastor Wade realized is that this scholar, who was raised as a Jew, one of our preeminent experts, and was religiously a Jew, simply borrowed from ancient truths and repackaged them as his own wisdom with new names. He made slight additions, of course, to pervert the truth. Our goal as we go through these next few slides, these next few things, will be to strip away the additions that he made, look for a brief moment at what the ancient and biblical commentaries have in common with today's leading authorities on child development and see what we can glean from it. Is that okay? Whether it's okay or not is what we're doing. Church is not a democracy. In a democracy, you buy votes. I don't intend to give you any money. Let's look at this slide. The stages of development. I keep seeing a vision of an orange tan. (laughs) I don't know why. In the stages of development, Eric Erickson says there is early childhood. Thank you. That's uh, that's brilliant insight. (laughs) Zero to five, he calls early childhood. Well, in Jewish homes in the first century, we had parent-led education from zero to five. Well, Eric Erickson says from ages six to 11, there were school-age children. Again, thank you. I don't know what we would do without this kind of insight. In biblical times, that age group, six to 10, not six to 11, you learned the works of Moses. You learned the five books of Moses. In Eric Erickson's model, he's observed that from 11 to 18, you're an adolescent. Wow. Thank you, Captain Obvious, for the journey into the blatantly well-known, right? In the Hebrew system, it's broken up a little differently. But Talmud, the age 11 to 14... You're working past the books of Moses trying to grasp the rest of the Bible and beginning to uh, delve into what the sages are saying. 
Then Eric Erickson puts us as young adults. Does any, can anybody read that? Who can read that out loud? Young adults. Who? Young adults, what are the age ranges? Come on. 19 to 40. Young adults. 19 to 40. Young adult. I think we may be having some developmental problems here. <laughs> In the Jewish system, you would have entered into Bet Midrash, which would be a time that you uh, would apply to a rabbi and learn to become what he is. This is also the time that you're expected to be uh, a child of God. No longer learning, you're actually practicing righteousness. Eric Erickson goes on to say, then you enter your middle adult ages. Middle adult ages, by the way, are 40 to 64. It's good that you're a middle adult till the year before you retire. That's, that's really good. Because you become a mature adult, according to him, at age 65. Now, biblical maturity was 30, um, physically anyway. 50, you were sagely. I think Eric is sliding our scale backwards to try to account. He's grading on a curve because he's looking at diseased human stock. The Bible was counting on you being regenerated. Eric Erickson is counting on you being unregenerated. I think it's kind of ironic that Numbers 8 and 1 John 2 pick up right where the other literature leaves off. See, Numbers 8 teaches us that from 25 to 50... You're a young man and you can work as a priest. But from 50 on, you're supposed to be like a father supervising priest. The point here is not the specifics that are on the screen. The point here is that both secular and godly sources recognizes their age of life development. Say there's more life to give. What's more complex, the life of a five-year-old or the life of a 50-year-old? Because he's been through more of life development. There is more life to give. Is that right or not? Yes. Turn with me to Luke 9. When you find it, when you discover it, like Columbus, put your finger on it and land. Luke nine twenty three. Then he said to them all. I love that about Jesus. He left no one out. It's very inclusive like that. Wait till you hear what he left no one out of. He said this to them all. He didn't, he didn't protect the, those that believed they had soft hearts. He, he didn't speak any harsher to those that believed they were tough and could handle it. He didn't treat them differently that had money from those that didn't have money. He didn't break them into different cultures, ethnicities, and nationalities and have a unique message for each one. He said this to them all. Say them all. Them all. Right. Them all is not them people over there. Them all is all of us, right? Come on. All of us. All of us. I don't like when people try to break up my church into separate groups. I don't see it that way. I don't identify with that at all. I'm never going to willingly allow you to identify that way. I want you to know that I love you. It's just fine if you think I'm crazy or disagree. I don't expect any of you to have beards because I have a beard beautiful. Did I say beautiful? Because I have a big beard. Don't, don't worry that it's beautiful. I don't expect you to be influenced by that at all. We don't have to look alike to be the same. 
Okay? That's a lie. And people that are searching out that lie, that's what they're going to get. That kind of lie. Right? You, you can be skinny and ripped and cut and still come to a church with a fat pastor. You can do that. It turns out that the pigment of our skin or the location of our childhood home has very little to do with the fact that you were born a damned sinner. Don't let anybody put you in a different category other than saved or lost. That's the only difference in humanity. Green doesn't separate. No color separates us. In the kingdom, we are either in Christ, who, by the way, is a first century Jew. That's strange as all get out. Or you're not in Christ. You're either saved or you're lost. It doesn't matter whether you have 12 adjectives on your nationality. You're a Dutch, European, Caucasian, American. In fact, it gets kind of hard to keep up with all that. I'd rather just call you a brother. Is that okay? Luke 9, 23. Then he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, if who would come after him? That's all them people. And me too. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. What is the way to follow him? Self-denial. What is the way to follow the world? Self-gratification. What are you spending more time doing? Denying self or gratifying self? You see how binary he makes the choice? How simple he makes the choice? You're either living a life to gratify yourself or you're living a life that is based on denying your desires and taking up God's. For whoever wants to save his life, anybody want to save their life in here? Raise your hand if you want to save your life in here. Well, the rest of you want to be executed right now? What's going on? If you want to save your life in here, raise your hand. I cannot believe that they're not 100. Watch this. If you want to save your life, raise your hands. You don't want to save your life. Meet me after the service. Meet me after the service. We will handle that. Because if you don't want life, guess what? You will never get it. Which begs the question, what on earth are you doing here? If you don't value the life you have, you don't want to save your life, then what are you doing here? Most of us are here because we found out that the life we've had, we've ruined. Maybe that's the issue. The life you have, you've ruined. And you need a new life. Maybe you know you don't deserve it. And that's a problem. Maybe you're hurt because of your own folly. Maybe that's the issue. There could be so many things that the devil has bound you up with and deceived you. And yet there's only one answer. If you won't lose the life that you have, then you will not be given another. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. If you want to be saved, it involves the loss of what you have. Well, that's a very interesting thing. We all know that, right? So you come to an altar and what do you do? Hey, Lord, I give you my life. Amen. Amen. Now I've got a new life, you know. Hey, call out some ages of when that happened to you. Just call them out. 24, 36. 
30. 17. Anybody? 21. 22. Anybody? 8. 10. 12. What age were you baptized? Call off the, 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 the year. What age were you baptized? 9. 6. 14. It's interesting how those dates don't line up very well, isn't it? You think maybe we're baptizing people because their parents said to and not because they're regenerated? If you want to save your life, you have to lose it. Well, let's talk about that. When you're five, what kind of life do you have to lose? You're damned. But what life do you have to give up? Well, maybe it's your favorite toy. Maybe you heard a message, you love Jesus, and you're like, I would even sell my Barbie to love Jesus. I've seen it. I believe it's real. As much life as that little five-year-old have, they're given Jesus. Of course, when they're six or ten, they may have acquired a little bit of life since that Barbie, huh? When you're six to ten, what does following Jesus look like? What does it look like to give up your life? Maybe it's surrendering your will, submitting to your parents. Maybe you have to do things like clean your room when you're told and resist the urge to lie. That may never have occurred to you when you're five. Wait. I could just like not do it at all and say I did. The five-year-old's not that complex. But when you get, some five-year-olds are. I'm about to find out again. (laughs) What's it like when you reach 25? You were willing to give up a Barbie for Jesus when you were five, but what at 25 has your life developed into that you don't know if you can surrender anymore? Say, but I'm saved. How saved are you? Say, well, I was saved when I was eight. That's why saved is in all three tenses in the Bible. I was saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. Because your life is developing, it's ongoing, and it requires the constant act of losing. Because at the point that you stop losing your life for Him, He stops being the Lord of the life that you now possess. Oh, come on now. Turn with me. To Luke 12. Verse 48. But the one who does not know and does the things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much. What's it say? From everyone who has been given much. See, the more life you've been given, the more life is demanded of you. And from he who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Do you know what that means? You can surrender your life at five, but you end up surrendering your life again at the next life development stage. You end up surrendering it again. You have to actually surrender your life daily. And it turns out that we rely on something that happened in the past because we want to ignore what he's challenging us with today. I've lived long enough to watch. My own children, I'm raising five of them, got another one on the way. Fall in love with the Lord, speak in other tongues, pray, do healing, see salvations, and yet encounter something in life that they start to love more than Jesus. You know what that is? It's idolatry. You have to help discipline it out of them. 
If you allow it and you make allowances for it, you're teaching the child that was walking in the way of the Lord how to love Baal while he's in your house. Wow, that's tough, huh? Why do you think so many people get saved when they're kids and backslide when they're teenagers? Do you think maybe they encountered a whole new area of life that they were unprepared for? And they had submitted a child's life to the Lord, but now sexual maturity is a whole different animal to have to surrender? Wow, it's awful quiet, huh? Could we put those stages of development back on the screen for a minute? That's our next slide. Stages of development. Look, man, you can keep breaking these up and up and up. I was reading this and I realized we have an, we have an AA problem. It's time we do something different in the church. Our meals are going to look a little different. Um, communion might look different. A lot of things are going to look different from here on out because we definitely have an AA problem. Our AA problem's got nothing to do with alcohol. It's adult adolescence. That's the problem. We believe that you can both be an adult and an adolescent. We have delayed maturity and the full giving of your life over to Jesus until you're 40 years old. You're a young adult until you're 40 years old. Nothing's really expected of you until you're 40 years old. Are you kidding me? This is ruining our society, our church, lock, stock, and barrel. You can think that the AA problem is an alcohol. The AA problem is you are punishing the rest of the world with your low expectations of what God wants of your life. We have so simplified it that you come down to the altar and say, God loves me and he's going to help me in this life and he's going to give me heaven in the next. I know that God loves me, which is great because I really love me too. That's not salvation. It's nowhere near salvation. It's not even close to the kingdom of God. Close to the kingdom of God is my own folly has ruined my life ruined my life i have hit a brick wall and i no longer can hold this life i can't wait to crucify it i can't wait to surrender it it's no longer something i want to carry i won't fight to keep it i'm going to rid myself of it that's what salvation looks like not some kind of negotiation that if you'll give me enough blessing, then I'll stop doing this sin. How disgusting. An AA problem. We believe that our adolescence can continue into adulthood. It's fine while I'm talking about children, isn't it? I was never really talking about children. You're supposed to be a child of God. How much of your life have you surrendered to Christ since the day that you walked the aisle and claimed to be saved? Did you make a child's commitment there, but it never grew into a young man's commitment? It never grew into a father's commitment. It never grew into a grandfather's commitment. As your life in Christ developed, did you continue to submit your life to the Lord, lock, stock, and barrel? Or did you decide your children's future? Did you decide what you wanted to buy, what you wanted to wear, where you wanted to go, what you wanted to do, what you want to watch? See, you promised him your life and you gave him an eight-year-old's life. 
But the problem is you're sitting here at 40 years old and the last 32 years have been all you. And they remain all you. So the portion of your life that was an 8-year-old life you gave to him and the next 32 years of investment you've been stealing from him. Let that sit for a minute. It needs to. It's easy to understand with children, but somehow adolescent adults, as they're entrusted with more, cannot figure out how to give it to the Lord. They still discipline as they see fit, not as the Lord says. They still lead as they see fit, not as the Lord says. They still do as they want. They embrace what they like, they avoid what they dislike, and they remain adolescents to 40 years old with no problem. It's really disgusting. The Lord deserves better. By the way, there's no group of people on the planet that feel more entitled to the lives that they have built for themselves than those that are in the older adult categories. Oh, it's good when I'm talking about the children. It's good when I'm talking about those under 40. Those of you over 40 in here that feel like you have made something of your life so you deserve things now, that is every bit as wicked as any other category and maybe more so because you should know better. Why don't we revisit Luke 9? Now that perhaps I've set it in your lap, you can figure out what to do with it. This will be Luke 9. It's a slide. It's our next slide. In Luke 9, verse 24. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. What does it mean to lose your life? Well, we put it on the screen for you. The Greek number is 622. It means to destroy your life. To put it out of the way entirely. Say entirely. entirely. To abolish it. To put an end. <clears throat> Here you go. You ready? To ruin. If there's any part of your life that you're holding on to, then you are a fool standing in his own folly ruining your life. You have to let it go. You have to completely let it go. You have to render it useless. Do you see what the last one is? You have to kill it. That's incredible. Lord, you literally believe that I can hold on to nothing? That's exactly right, because whatever you hold on to is no longer in the Lord's hand. We're in a courageous church. People give away their retirements in here. We fund missions around the world. This ministry has given away $100,000 a year for quite a few years now. All in third world impoverished countries where people are doing the work of the Lord. The day that we begin to hold on to the blessings God gives us, He will cease to bless us. They will ensnare us and become a prison. What are you doing in your own life? You know, it's an interesting thing. One man finds $10 on the ground and he says, Look how the Lord has blessed me. He wasn't praying for it. He wasn't looking for it. But he's sure it's for him. Because he found it. It's his. It doesn't even occur to him that perhaps... He found that because one of his brothers is praying for it. And it's his job to bring it. Another man so bad off that the armored truck turns over on the highway, cash bills out, and he says, look how the Lord has blessed me. 
never occurs to him that it's stealing. What in your life are you hanging on to that the Lord is telling you you must let go of? And what does it mean to let it go? It means destroy it. It means put it out of the way entirely. Abolish it. Render it useless. Kill it. I want you to consider Abraham while we're on this. I, I'm just going to spit them out for you. How many of you know I rarely lie when I preach? Genesis 21, 8 through 13, Abraham's over 100 years old, but he has to send Ishmael away. Is there anybody in here that thinks that's easy, to send a teenage son away? If you think that's easy, then you probably don't have a teenage son. You want to kill them, but you mostly want to kill them for the things that they're doing that are endangering their lives. It's a strange paradox. It couldn't have been easy for this father to want to send his son away, but the Lord required it of him. In Genesis 22, 1 through 2, sometime later, after 100 years old, he has to take his other son, Isaac, up on a mountain and sacrifice him. In Genesis 23, 1 through 2, he's 137 years old and his wife dies. Somebody said there's more life to give. What do you think he wanted to do when his wife died? Probably die too. But then there's Keturah, his second wife. There's more life to give. In Genesis 25, 5 through 7, he's nearly 175 years old. And you know what one of the last actions he has to do is? Send all of Keturah's sons away to the east. See, Abraham left Ur of the Chaldees. Most people would call that saved. He'd say, man, I got saved when I was 70. Then Abraham went from Ur of the Chaldees to uh, Haran. There he left behind his father and, and uh, a life of idolatry. They'd say he got saved then. Then he comes into the promised land and every time he builds an altar, he has to leave it. Most people want to camp on the tiny little bit of self-denial, the tiny little bit of surrendering their life and say, I was saved! That was it! I got the trophy! And you don't realize that the father of our faith never stopped losing his life. Paul never stopped losing his life. We don't find the narrow way and say, hey, I'm on the narrow way. It continues to get more and more narrow until there's nothing left of you but Jesus. Oh, did you stop along the way and declare yourself done? God, I know that this is what the Lord's been dealing with me about. You know how he tends to teach you? He lets you bloody your nose publicly. He lets you stub your toes publicly. If private unction has not been getting you there, then he will give you the public whipping that you deserve. Eric Erickson can say never discipline a child in public, but God disagrees with Eric Erickson. He'll use as much as it takes because he loves you. And any good father will use as much as it takes to discipline a son. Whether it's popular, whether it's recommended, whether it's even legal. I'm willing to go to jail for it because I believe discipline brings life. All of these things are way after Genesis 15 where Abraham is credited with righteousness. Now here's the amazing question. If he's credited with righteousness in Genesis 15, but in Genesis 22 he will not offer Isaac, do you think he's still righteous? Because the Lord says, now I know. Now I know. 
that you love me because you have not withheld your son, your one and only son from me. If he offered Isaac and was still righteous but refused to send away Keturah's sons at the end of his life, do you really think that he's still righteous? Do you think you can give the Lord your life when you're 8, 14, or 20 and then keep every bit of it thereafter and still be righteous? If you think about your own spiritual walk, I think what you're going to find is that the times in your life you have done well and you have grown is because you surrendered something to God. And as soon as you came to the unction of the Spirit that said you must, and you said, yeah, I I don't know. I'm going to have to think about that. You plateaued and sat in a place of death that begins the ruination process to get your attention. It's like you are living out the book of Judges. The oppressor is on the way. He's on the way. Your peace is gone. Your spirit is disturbed. You are beginning to revert to the old ways, but now you speak the Christian language. Friends, that's backslidden. Do you know what it takes to backslide? To stop moving forward when God says go forward. Say, no, 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 no. God said go here. I'm there. I did it. Oh, amen. We got the videotape. I did it. The problem is God is still moving. And you're no longer moving. And even though you didn't quote, unquote, do something wrong, you failed to do Zedekah, the next right thing he told you to do. So God has moved on and you are left again sitting in the life that you have retained for yourself. Is that where any of us want to be? No. I had intended to preach to you about a barren woman's faith because she had nothing. Only thing she had is what God gave her. But I think I've given you enough to chew on. And Wednesday night, I'm going to pick up a barren woman's faith. Right now, we have to acknowledge something. The Lord clearly said to us through tongue and interpretation in our worship service, if you will repair the altar of your heart, I will again rain upon your land. You have heard it said that it rains on the just and the unjust, but the prophecy said in this I make a distinction today. For those that will not repair the altar of their heart will have only drought. But those who will repair the altar of their heart will have abundant showers from heaven. The thing is, is when you give the Lord more of your life, He responds by giving you more of His life. He was preparing you for something. Now I'm telling you how to do it. It requires you to surrender your plans for your life. You hear that all of the time, but you don't really do it. You still say on such and such date, I'm going to do such and such thing. I'm going to set up this business. I'm going to do these things right out of James, even though the word says don't do it. You still think that you have the right to determine what your kids will do and become. You still think that you have the right to direct your life because you took your life back from God after he gave you a new one. All the time singing praises. So what is to be done? The same thing that you did when you were eight. The same thing that you did at your next stage of life development. You have to take all that you are today, 
all that you are right now and you have to put it at the Lord's feet. And make no mistake about it, if you do not do it, then you're out of the will of God. Amen. Could you stand to your feet?